The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and today I'm joined by Tom Christensen. Tom, in addition to being a professor at Princeton for many years now, was Deputy Assistant Secretary of State from 2006 to 2008 uh, with focus on China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia, if I'm correct. He has recently completed a book called The China Challenge, Shaping the Choices of a Rising Power. Tom, why this book and why now? Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the challenges that China's rise poses for the United States and its allies in East Asia and its security partners in East Asia, so I thought it was a good time to uh, try to correct the record. And the book really addresses two separate challenges. One is in the security realm, where I think a lot of people mistakenly believe that China is either trying to drive the United States out of East Asia or is trying to become a rival around the world as a global superpower rival of the United States. And I see China's military modernization as posing a real challenge for the United States, but a different one. And that is that China's rise in East Asia could destabilize a region that really is important to us. And China's coercive capacity, short of becoming a peer competitor of the United States, can still pose major security challenges for the United States and its allies. Um, Combine that with the sovereignty disputes and the fact that almost all the actors in the region sincerely believe that their claims are legitimate and they overlap and you have a real recipe for destabilization of a region uh, that is quite important to the United States. So that's a security piece. And uh, then there's another piece, which is a global governance piece. And uh, on that score, I think the real challenge that people miss is that uh, the world is more globalized than ever before, so all great powers need to contribute actively to solving common problems if we're to solve them. If one of the great powers... Uh, obstructs, it'll be impossible to solve problems. But even if one of the great powers, a power as great as China, for example, drags its feet and free rides on the efforts of others, it's going to be very difficult to solve those problems. And the problem that we have is we have this highly integrated world, but we have one of the great powers, China, that's still a developing country with lots of domestic problems. And we've never asked a developing country in history to contribute as much to solving problems far away from its shores as we're already asking of China. And as its economy grows even more and its diplomatic footprint grows even more, we're going to ask China to contribute a lot more. And that's going to be a real difficult diplomatic challenge for the United States and the other great powers because the per capita income of China is nowhere near uh, the per capita income of any of the other great powers in the world. In the book, you talk a lot about kind of China's security, military capacity today, mm-hmm. and that it is not really a, a peer competitor. In fact, on the immediate horizon, mm-hmm. it's not a peer competitor. Why do you think there is such fear and so much literature about kind of China as a current threat? Well, I think that some of that literature is exaggerated and and, uh, hyperbolic in its analysis of China's current military strength. And other parts, other sections of that literature are actually quite reasonable. And the reason that people that I consider reasonable are concerned about China's military modernization and its rise is that in military affairs, you don't need to be a peer competitor to pose a challenge to a greater power. 
Um, and the combination of geography and the fact that the U.S. has allies so close to China and China is so far from the United States gives China's uh, growing coercive capacity against forward-deployed U.S. forces more punch than it otherwise would have. And uh, the United States uh, needs East Asia not only because East Asia as a region is important to the United States, but because the alliances and the bases in East Asia are a part of a global network of power projection. Um, you can't just chop off that piece of it. So uh, China poses a challenge to a region that matters to us. And one of the things I say in the book, and I think you'd appreciate this, Steve, is that I'm not picking on China in particular when I say that China's rise could destabilize a region. Because in 2000, I published an article with my colleague Dick Betts in which I said, um, if China handles its rise in its region as badly as the United States handled its rise in its own region, we'll be in big trouble. And you know, late 19th century, we had a giant war with Spain, followed by a giant counterinsurgency war in the Philippines, almost all of which was unnecessary because of a combination of newfound power and new, newfound frictions with neighbors that we didn't handle well, and jingoism and nationalism at home. So I think China could easily fit into that mold if, it's, if, if, if things are managed badly, and it could work out much better than that, we would hope. What would this book have looked like if you had not spent those few years in the, uh, in the government? How much did government kind of change the way you thought about China? Well, I like to think of myself as always having been an academic who was uh, focused on practical uh, policy problems, but... Um, I dedicated the book to my uh, three deputies who were the directors of the offices, the China and the Mongolia Affairs Office and the Taiwan Coordination Office. Um, and I did that for a reason, because I just learned so much uh, on that job from them and from their staffs about the way the relationship is managed. And so many of my misconceptions were removed in that process. I hope it's reflected in the book. Um, and one of the things I tried to reflect in the book is what I learned from them, these are, these are career public uh, servants who served across administrations, is that all administrations have good policies and all administrations make mistakes. Um, so it's not a partisan issue. So in the book, I try to go through the, the uh, administrations of George H.W. Bush up to Obama, and I hope that I fairly represent the places where each of those administrations did well and each of them stumbled. I was pleased to see you gave credit to the National Committee for hosting the speech at which Robert Zellick declared that China should be a responsible stakeholder. You also go on to say that you think that still is should be the heart of U.S. policy. Tell uh, us why. Yeah, I think it still is the heart of U.S. policy, and it gets to that second challenge, that challenge of convincing China to persistently and constructively contribute to solving global governance problems around the world because the, the stability of the international system requires that and everybody, including China, benefits from that stability. Um, and the big challenge is getting a country that has huge domestic problems and is relatively poor uh, on a per capita basis to contribute to those efforts around the world. And I think that uh, Robert Zellick's speech was pitch perfect on that score. Uh, at the time, I thought it was a great speech. I remember it was pretty controversial that night at the National you were Committee. At the dinner. I was at the dinner, and I think I was the only person at the table who loved the speech. Um, and I did note uh, I was uh, I was watching um, across the way at the Chinese uh, uh, diplomatic delegation, and they seemed uh, interested 
and not at all upset about the speech as much as some Americans were. So I thought it was a very fine speech. I do think it's the foundation of American foreign policy to this day. But as you know, in politics, you can't have a change of administrations across parties and have the new party accept the verbiage, even if the conceptual structure is still there. But I do believe that was a breakthrough in U.S. uh, policy toward China, and I do believe it still is the foundation of uh, U.S. foreign policy toward China on these issues. I I agree with you on that. And And what puzzles me in that context is I think... The Obama administration, exactly what you say, still believes in it but has to change the rhetoric Mm -hmm. because it's a new administration. In that context, though, what do you think about the Obama administration's treatment of China's creation of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank? Well, it's an interesting question because I I have a healthy skepticism of the way the media covers what administrations do behind closed doors. And um, the media covered that to suggest that the Obama administration was actively trying to block participation in that effort by U.S. allies. If that was the case, that's bad diplomacy, in my opinion. I think the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank is the kind of initiative uh, that we should be encouraging China to adopt. Uh, We should try to shape it and, and, and make it as constructive as possible, but it's the kind of use of Chinese wherewithal that we should be encouraging. So I don't know what happened behind those closed doors, so I don't necessarily believe the media reports. The place I can be critical, though, is in the public diplomacy realm, I don't think the administration did nearly enough to correct those public perceptions early. So if they weren't saying that to Australia and South Korea and the UK, then they should have corrected that publicly and said, no, no, we're not against anyone joining it. Um, And it took a very long time for them to come around to the position they're currently in, which is that it's basically a constructive project. And I think that's the right position. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about the successful U.S. diplomacy with respect to Taiwan and maintaining the status quo during the the Chen Shui-bian era. 72 hours ago now, we had this incredible vision, or or this incredible view of Ma Zhou and Xi Jinping Mm -hmm. shaking hands. How do you think about the U.S. response to that and what we, how we should think about that going forward? Well, here I have to divide myself uh, between being a former official and thinking about it as a, as a um, problem for U.S. diplomacy, official diplomacy, and then uh, my role as a scholar analyzing the potential outcomes that will come out of that, uh, what they call a summit, right? Um, From the U.S. government perspective, I think they handled it exactly right, which is to say we encourage cross-strait contacts and peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, and I think that's absolutely right. They had no choice but to adopt that position. That's what I would have written in any memo that I passed along to my superiors while I was in the government. Um, From an analytic perspective, it worries me somewhat for the following reason, Steve, that uh, my strong impression, having been to Taiwan this year, Uh, having studied this for years, is that uh, the Democratic Progressive Party is going to win the uh, elections next year. Uh, The leader of that uh, party, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, will be president. She is a very smart and moderate person. I don't expect her to adopt some of the initiatives that her uh, former president, Chen Shui-bian, adopted. I expect her to be uh, more moderate and more constructive in cross-strait relations. But I don't expect her to accept some of the mainland's uh, demands on issues like 
saying one China or accepting the 1992 consensus. So what concerns me, given the context, that this change is likely to happen, and we're likely to have a president that, that is not in Taiwan that is not going to poke the mainland in the eye every day, but is not going to accept their language, that the, that the Xi Jinping Mayingzhou summit may have created a backdrop in which the mainland will say anything short of accepting the 92 consensus is a provocative revision of the status quo. So that's what worries me as an analyst, as a scholar. But the U.S. position is exactly right. We want the two sides of the strait to talk peacefully with each other, and we could do nothing but celebrate the idea that these people had gotten together and, and met and that uh, talking is better than fighting. Last question again. One recent news. Would you have sent the destroyer within 12 miles of the, the reef? Yes. Would you have waited three years to do it? I wouldn't have waited as long as they did. To the point answer. We are out of time, but I have had with me today, and you can see from the clarity of these answers how good this book, The China Challenge, is. It is just about the clearest analysis of the U.S.-China relationship over the last 15, 20 years that you can have. It is a must-read for both the student of the relationship and the expert in the relationship. Tom, congratulations for writing what is truly a terrific book. Thanks a lot, Steve. Coming from you, that means a lot. And thanks for joining us today.